Oh, I'm sorry. My, my thing stopped recording. Card full. Aye, aye, aye. Josh, what do I do? Um, we suck it up, use the Zoom recording from this point forward, and just deal. Okay, good. Whatever. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by co-hosts, deputy editor of Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Butnick. Hi. And editor-at-large of Tablet Magazine, Liel Leibowitz. Slightly less large after the fast of Youth Zion and Talmud. Did, did you did you fast this year? I, for... I fasted. I'm, I'm, I'm prepping for Tzom Gedalia. It's like the marathon training for Tzom Gedalia. Youth Zion and Talmud is like the long run before that. I have to say that, um, remember my little, little, and my little, little, little? From your sorority? Consuelo yeah. and Danny. Um, I got a text from Danny that said, I got a new phone, here's my number. Also, anyone fasting for 17th of Tamas tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> our work here is done. Converts, yes, better getting do the than job I'll ever done. <laughs> our Jew of the Week this week is Brad Kolodny, who spoke with Stephanie about his book, which features photography of Long Island's synagogues. Basically, Stephanie was born to do this interview. And we have not one, not two, but three Gentiles this week. The Gentiles responsible for sustaining Jewish culture in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. Uh, this is a really nifty story, and you have to hold on to hear the rest of it. But I will be back with you with the Gentiles of Wyomissing, and it is well worth the wait. But before we get there, we've been talking about this Reddit thread that Josh Cross found for us. Now, I try not to ever utter the words Reddit thread, but Josh cut and pasted this thread, this question that was posted to a social media channel that I've heard is called Reddit. Liel, would you do us the honor of giving a dramatic interpretation of this letter? Cue Masterpiece Theater Music. We met our junior year of college at a Hillel, in parentheses, Jewish Student Center event that my actual Jewish friend brought me along to. We really hit it off when we met and I was able to get her number, leading us, hanging out several times and starting to date. I have a vaguely Jewish sounding last name and I've been mistaken for one before based on that and my appearance. So I'm guessing that combined with the fact that we met at a Hillel, never really led her to question me about my actual religion. Raised Catholic, but agnostic now. In the few times she's asked me about common Jewish experiences growing up, I usually just responded my parents weren't that interested in religion and we didn't live near many other Jews, which are technically both true statements. Fast forward to now. We both graduated and are living in the same city, building our careers. We both want to progress our relationship further and I really love her. But based on what conversations I've had with her about the future, it seems marrying a Jewish man is really important to her and her family. I have no qualms about converting to be with her and I've thought about doing it secretly to be able to say truthfully that I am Jewish. I'm not sure how she'd react to finding out I'm not Jewish, but I'm willing to bet she'd break up with me asking for guidance in navigating the situation and whether to convert or come clean. <laughs> this is the greatest thread of all time. Whether to convert or come clean. This letter, so they've been dating three years and the whole time he's been lying to her or he's been committing the lie of omission of not correcting her <laughs> that she thinks that he's a Jew. Here's the thing. A lot of these subredditors who commented on this post took on the fact that he's been lying to her for three years, which is problematic. But I'm reading this thinking, how piss poor is your relationship 
that you know each other that poorly, that you've shared with her so few stories about your childhood that you she's never met your relatives and sort of sussed out what their ethnicity is, that basically you don't know each other at all. And all I can think is I felt the way about this letter the way I feel when I hear that a married couple has never seen each other pee. Well, that pre-pandemic, everything's, who knows what's happening, like, you right. know. Really? You've never seen each other pee? You, do you know each other at all? But there, there are all kinds of couples. They're all, maybe this isn't as crazy as I think. I mean, I do think it's, it's a little improbable. Like, if she's met his parents, can you imagine the situation where she's like, well, how was, like, little Mendel's bar mitzvah? And they were like, <laughs> Mendel is a Lutheran name. Like, yeah. um, I, think, I think it's weird. I think it's so funny that, that he posted because he clearly, like, wants to either be absolved or chastened or punished or koshered or koshered. Like, right, Stephanie, he was, he was sitting there in Illinois saying, you know, it's almost Tishrei before the Amim Noraim. I need some <laughs> repentance. So, you know. <laughs> But, but when think, Elul starts, and, look, you know, we've solved the problem for him because she's very obviously listening to this podcast. Totally. And so now she's going to be like, wait, wait, I did meet Jeremy at the Hillel and <laughs> he does have curly hair. Um, but you know what? It is weird. He's he's sort of like all of his references come from pop culture. And I, and, and I did think it was strange <laughs> when he said, you know, I read this article about Israel that I totally didn't agree with, but thought made a really good point. <laughs> <laughs> He really loves bacon. He, oh my God. <laughs> I I have to say though, I'm pretty sure she knows he's not Jewish and she keeps dropping hints to him about the, how the fact oh that they're going to have to break up at some point because right. she needs to marry a Jew. Or, or vice versa. Or she's like, that's actually maybe, you know, like kind of something I liked about you and I'm just testing you here. Is this part of their erotic charge? Is there's this lie between them that both of them are kind of afraid to call out? Like she's into the fact that she's hooking up with a non-Jew Ooh, pretending like to be that. a Jew, and he's into the fact that he's deceiving her? Is this, is like, this I mean, this a- is such a Judd Apatow <laughs> ma- movie I love in the it, making. Right? <laughs> it's like Seth Rogen and some like beautiful blonde actress. Kath- and- Catherine Hagel, say? In the talented <laughs> Mr. Goldberg, a tale of love and Judaism. <laughs> they share a computer now because they they're working from home, and she's going to open it. And anyway, I'll watch the movie. Uh, J. Crew, you have to help us adjudicate this. We, we are giving them unsolicited advice. But J. Crew helped them out. 914-570-4869. Imagine that you got this letter uh, asking for your advice. What would you tell this individual? 914-570-4869 or write to us on orthodox at tabletmag.com. News of the Jews. N-O-T-J. News of the Jews. News of the Jews. I don't understand any of the news of the Jews this week. I don't understand fashion. I don't understand sports. So I'm going to have to, I'm going to lean back out of this one. But could one of you explain to me what's up with the fast fashion brand Shein? Well, when you think fashion, you think me. So with pleasure, Shein, uh, the beautifully named website of fashion, spelled S-H-E-I-N, uh, removed a swastika pendant from its website after some customers noticed and complained, and a company representative reportedly said that the necklace wasn't, you know, the bad kind of swastika, but the cool Buddhist kind of swastika, man. So the the, the Shini swastika that they put out... Uh, Wait, kind of a the, question. What is Shini? I've never heard that word until you used it the other week, Mark. Shini is an old anti-Jewish slur, like from the days of Heeb and Yid. To, you could call someone a Shini. What does it mean? I have no idea. I have no idea the etymology of Shini. So one of our listeners wrote in about the pizza pizza, the Little Caesars pizza that had the 
the, the pepperoni swastika on it that we talked about last week, that actually the swastika wasn't backwards unless you're a Nazi, that it was the original Buddhist or, you know, ancient Sanskrit, Hindu, you know, the, ba- way back in Indo-Europe, there was this symbol that was a swastika that had the little like arms going in the opposite direction. And periodically there are people who want to reclaim the swastikas. Oh, no, no, it's not a Nazi symbol. It's the old Buddhist or Sanskrit symbol. It's actually the ancient Aryan symbols that the that the Nazis thought that they were appropriating. Is this remotely plausible? Like, are people allowed to use the old swastika with the arms going the other direction? Or is it just, did, did Hitler kind of ruin the swastika for us? <laughs> I do not think that there are any Buddhists out there who are like, you know what? We really want this symbol. We get it, but we're, we're going to take it back. Like, I, I think it is so past that place. They get to bring back the swastika if we get to reclaim one of the previously great names of successful creative Jewish men. They have the swastika. We have Adolf. Adolf. We, we're bringing back Adolf. Deal. Adolf Green, Adolf Ox. So many great Adolfs out there. You know, one Adolf destroys the whole batch. I think we're the ones who voluntarily gave up on Adolf. I mean, I think it is ours to reclaim if we feel the time is now, right? You guys, no. I will say, though, when I was in Japan on my honeymoon, I mean, on Google Maps, on your phone, like the swastika is the symbol for temples. And it is yeah. very jarring. I kept taking screenshots being like swastikas, just Nazis everywhere. But I, it's, I mean, it's, you're making it's wrong my point. for me to go into that country and say, you must change these because they make me uncomfortable. I don't know that they need to sell me swastikas. Online. The same thing happened to me uh, when I was in things. Yad Vashem from my honeymoon. <laughs> everywhere. So... If I may, I think it raises the very serious question of just what do you do with people who are dumbass ignorant, right? Because that's partly what's popping up in the other big bit of news of the Jews this week. So for our sports update, I'd like to go to you, Stephanie Butnick, sports correspondent Stephanie Butnick. Thank you. Sports correspondent by osmosis. It's like Sports Center. I'll give you a brief update on everything that happened last week. Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Deshaun Jackson posted a series of strange messages on Instagram, including this quote, which he incorrectly attributed to Hitler. White Jews, quote, will blackmail America. They will extort America. Their plan for world domination won't work if the Negroes know who they were. I don't actually know who said that, but it wasn't. It's one of the few things Hitler didn't say. He also shared posts that praised Louis Farrakhan, who's the controversial nation of Islam leader. And the weird thing is, so the Eagles are like owned and managed by two Jews, right? Like their owner is Jewish, their general manager is Jewish. And the team, they called this post offensive, harmful, absolutely appalling. And they said they would take, quote, appropriate action. And here's where it gets a little complicated. Some athletes posted in support of Jackson, including Stephen Jackson, who is a former NBA player who was very close with George Floyd. And others took the less popular approach, notably Pittsburgh Steelers player Zach Banner, who posted, I'm sure people have seen this by now, it was this long video urging his fellow players, specifically black players, on not to ignore anti-Semitism, which is something that he had become invested in following the Tree of Life shooting in 2018 in Pittsburgh, which is where obviously his team is. The funny thing that happened there was that he noticed like the next day an uptick in donations to his foundation in denominations of 18, which is like how you know you've said something the Jews like. Um, (laughs) I will say that I'm uncomfortable with the fact that you say something good about Jews after someone says something like about how Jews are greedy and then the Jews all give you money. Like that does, like it makes me a little (laughs) uncomfortable. But then... New England Patriots uh, wide receiver Julian Edelman, he invited Deshaun Jackson to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., and they've apparently spoken on the phone. So there were sort of like a few people who stuck up for the Jays. Julian Edelman obviously is Jewish himself. And then since then, Deshaun Jackson has been making sort of the apology rounds that we always sort of see when you muck up. He did a Zoom call with a 94-year-old Holocaust survivor, 
And this guy, Ugh. Edward Mosberg, put on his concentration camp uniform for the Zoom. I love that. It's like you don't need a virtual background. Just throw oh, on that God. Holocaust top. I hate everything about this. I hate that. Wait, I'm not even done yet. Oh, sorry. Sean Jackson apologized. He basically says, like, I didn't know anyone Jewish. This has been really powerful. I, I didn't mean I have no hatred in my heart. And the survivor was like, OK, come to Auschwitz. And the latest oh. as of this morning is that Deshaun Jackson has accepted Edward Mosberg's invitation to Auschwitz. And here we are. Deshaun, Deshaun Jackson's like, dude, I play for Philadelphia. Like, I suffer every day. Don't put that trip on me, man. Can I tell you my, my favorite thing about this whole thing, which is just great? This is a gem. This is a deep cut, but I love it deeply. So covering this affair, not quite as eloquently as Stephanie did, here's what ESPN wrote. Did Jackson truly intend to propagate centuries-old aspersions against Jews, all while suggesting that Jews are worse than they are? <laughs> Which is just great. It's like, did he really mean to say that Jews are worse than we all know that they actually are in reality? <laughs> Thanks, ESPN. Did he cross the line? Can I go stab my eyes out with a fork now? Can I resign from the human race? So we've got this player who says, out of perhaps ignorance, perhaps malice, incredibly stupid things about Jews. Says he's never met a Jew, although he probably has because he's probably met his own boss, his own team owner. But obviously didn't know that he was Jewish. And then, of course, the world goes crazy because, A, it's anti-Semitic and it's normalizing and mainstream anti-Semitism. But B, and here maybe I differ from the two of you a little bit, you know I have this long-time beef with the fact that, like, I really hate that we care so much what celebrities say about politics, cultural issues, social issues. I'm not saying that it's inappropriate for celebrities to be politicized. Like, I think that if there's an issue they care about and they're educated on it and they take stands, like that's a great way to move the ball forward, so to speak, on issues. But I also feel like we put way too much stock in what- I'm, actor... I'm sorry, Mark. I just want to make absolutely clear that I understand because this sounds like a little bit of a crazy comment. Like, are you saying that you do not take your moral and political guidance from the Philadelphia Eagles? I, not the, the Steelers sometimes, the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> no, he takes it from the band, the Eagles. During... <laughs> so, I, you know, part of me is the outcry over this reflects something twisted about American culture, that we are so celebrity obsessed, first of all. Second, you know, the ignorance, of course, runs super deep, Right. Third, then there's the whole like gross apology circuit, which I don't wish on anyone. Like if somebody insults me, I'm, I don't want to set up Zoom calls you for them. You have to have lunch survivors. with Abe Foxman. I don't set them up for lunch with Simon Wiesenthal and Abe Foxman and, you know, old Jewish nonprofit executives. I'm not going to sentence them to read Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl, at least not until I've read it for the first time. <laughs> like, I just hate that, all that performative stuff. And I don't like seeing anyone put through it, even people who say incredibly stupid anti-Semitic stuff. And so everything about this just kind of sickens me, you know? And so then we're going to we're gonna fight Deshaun Jackson with Julian Edelman. Like, foot, uh, we'll put our football player up against your football player. Although, can, can, I, can, I actually... can we just send them all back no, to college to do the work? Listen, Julian Edelman, I actually think you have no idea how much it pains me to say something positive about a member of the Patriots, Patriot? right? Yeah. It, really, it's very, as an Eagles fan, this is hard, but Julian Edelman, God bless his beautiful soul. He saw this thing instead of like, you know, kind of like just jumping on a bandwagon and shouting and screaming and making statements. He called a friend or, you know, a colleague up and said, hey, man, I really think you got this wrong. Let's talk like, like normal people, like normal human beings. I think that's really beautiful and large hearted and I freaking love it. I'll buy exactly that. what you do. I, I will buy that. And Stephanie, what's going on with Nick Cannon? Nick Cannon, who hosts The Masked Singer, he also hosted America's Got Talent. He's like an actor, singer, can do it all. Um, one thing he also can do is praise Louis Farrakhan repeatedly on his YouTube show. And in a, a clip that came out recently that was he, I guess, reposted to his channels, 
he like is referencing the Rothschild, the bloodlines that control everything. And this idea that like black people are the true Hebrews. He also talks about like the Illuminati, the Zionist, the Rothschild, which he like listed in that order. So like a lot of like kind of weird shit he was saying. So basically we have to add him to the category of people who like say definitely creepy stuff about Jews. And what's interesting to me is like the through line here seems to be Louis Farrakhan, right? That's the guy who keeps showing up in all of these rants that go online. Like you always see, you see Farrakhan there pretty quickly. And I will also just conclude by saying it saddens me that Louis Farrakhan, who has almost no actual followers, whose alleged prison ministries are greatly overstated, who has almost no people at the Nation of Islam mosques anymore. I think it's it's actually one of the great scandals that the media acts as if he has ground troops, does have in fact so much popularity with a lot of celebrities, often very ignorant celebrities. And he continues to exert this kind of influence through just kind of media savvy that, in fact, he doesn't deserve if you look at how many people actually follow him. That's a baffling thing to me, because on the one hand, you're a, a thousand percent right. This is a person who's, you know, if you took all of his Hasidim, right, all of his followers into a, a, a one place. It's not an arena concert. It's, it's, not, it's even, not even like it's a, not a stadium concert, right? It's like 5,000 to it's a small 8, club. It's a people. club concert. At yeah. the same time, it's Nick Cannon who, you know, repeated his insane conspiracy theories. It's Deshaun Jackson. It's Ice Cube. It's P. Diddy. It's like... All these people, I mean, here is here is Louis Farrakhan standing on stage with like all the who's who's in like Aretha Franklin's funeral and, you know, next to Barack Obama and Jesse Jackson and these guys. Like this is a person who clearly has some kind of cachet, albeit not followers. Imagine for a second if, you know, Barbara Streisand and Steven Spielberg and Alan Arkin and Alan Arkin and Mel Brooks all supported this like crazy lunatic right wing rabbi. And Mandy Patinkin, you know, all supported this this conspiracy theorist (laughs) lunatic. Like, there would be no end of articles and outcries, like, how dare they ban them, don't listen. Like, it would be like a whole thing. And and here, all these people are huge Farrakhanites. And we keep hearing again and again, oh, don't talk about Farrakhan. Farrakhan doesn't matter. So he doesn't have followers, but he does matter. And the fact that what he propagates are these bizarro conspiracy theories. These are not even, you know, kind of hardcore or extremist views. They're just like mad fibs. It's crazy. Can I ask you, Stephanie, as as a Jewess coming of age uh, a number of years after now. I did? <laughs> now. <laughs> I was a senior in college for the Million Man March, right? So I remember it, it was 84 or 88 when he had a sort of small role as a kind of peripheral player in the presidential seasons. And then 96 He convened the Million Man March, which was not a million men, but was definitely several hundreds of thousands of black people marching on Washington. And he was an anti-Semite, but and yet people turned out for him. So big deal, very terrifying to Jews. Did you grow up with that sort of like fair? I know you grew up with a lot of Holocaust fear, given who your family is. Did you grow up with Farrakhan fear? No, Louis Farrakhan was like never a name I encountered. I feel like working in a Jewish space, I see his name a lot. And it's always led me. I mean, when John Mulaney was last on Saturday Night Live as a host, he he had this great monologue where he was sort of like, if you don't recognize me, I get it. I'm like Louis Farrakhan. I mean, a lot to a very small number of people. My name is John Mulaney. And if you're watching at home and you don't know who I am, I'm sorry. Uh, I am like Louis Farrakhan. I mean, a lot to a small group of people. <laughs> And to me, I was like, yes, that's the thing. Like, I know Farrakhan as someone like Jews sort of see as this boogeyman. I actually don't recall his role in like real actual history. And so I place him as someone who like is on the fringes of society and like has these weird views. 
but now I guess is creeping back into the mainstream. But I don't know how how scared to be of him. I think a lot of black people, especially, are like, stop talking about Farrakhan. He's not he's not really our leader in any I, way. I totally hear that. But at the same time, I think it's a completely disingenuous argument to say this because you know when you have someone who clearly influences a disproportionate number of prominent, you know, African American entertainers and executives and athletes and and you know people really with with huge 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 followings who then go out and repeat these crazy conspiracy theories and then on top of it when you have people like Chelsea Handler and Jessica Chastain who are sharing his videos not knowing or maybe knowing and not caring that this is a person who not only hates Jews and denies the Holocaust but also says that all gays should be killed and that trans people are the devil etc cetera, etc cetera. this is just insane to me this is not something that we should minimize for one second. I will say, like, I'm, I'm torn, right? Like, I don't know what I want to happen to Deshaun Jackson. I don't know that he needs to go to Auschwitz. I'd, I'd rather not be out of punishment. I mean, I don't <laughs> so want to, anyone. So to you speak. do not want to send Deshaun Jackson to Auschwitz, yeah. No, and You're don't do the training there, Deshaun. Um, I, 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 I hate this idea that, like, you lose your job if you criticize a Jewish person. Absolutely. I want, I want there to be learning. I also, it, it, to me, and maybe this is, like, some sort of sublimated, internalized something, but, like, it, to me, it proves this point that, like, who's what's that John Cusack thing that he says? Like, who can't you criticize. That's how you know who rules the world. It's like, I don't want you to get fired for saying something crappy about Jews. I want you to sort of like be embraced and learn, not maybe in the way that happens now, right, where you get trotted out for the ADL and stuff like that at all their luncheons, Um, but a way that real learning happens. And I also... I don't know. I also don't like the Farrakhan thing is weird. It's like I feel weird about it. I don't want to overstate it, but I don't want to ignore it. But I also it feels like it's a wedge issue for a lot of people. Like we say, like, but Farrakhan and I can't. So I can't therefore do this, this and this. Stephanie, here's here's what I want. I'm totally there with you. But but I want a world in which no one gets fired for making this kind of ignorant mistake. But if we don't have that kind of world, then I want a world that what you say about Jews, that if you quote Hitler favorably against the Jews, you should suffer the exact same consequences you would than if you quoted, say, David Duke against blacks, or if you talked about any other minority group in America. Because if you don't have that, then none of these conversations about social justice or whatever are worth a damn. So you think that's not happening right now? No, you see it's not happening right now. This is proof it's not happening right now. Because the, the Eagles will say, my team, my beloved Eagles, here's the thing, like, they said, oh, we're disappointed. Now, imagine a white Southern wide receiver saying, yeah, man, General Robert E. Lee, he was kind of a great guy. Like, what would happen to that person? That person would not play professional football six minutes after he made that statement. I think that's Wait, true. Except there was Riley Cooper who said the N-word on, on film on the Philadelphia Eagles, and he got a new contract. When? Like seven years ago? Different millennium. Producer Josh Cross, I think that's a fair point, but I think Leal's is also a fair point. I don't know. Stephanie, I don't share your discomfort with, I, I think that that we're right to say that Louis Farrakhan support is a non-starter and that people have to reject it. And I think I think it's okay. I think we're going to lose a lot of people there because they're going to say he's so important to certain communities and it's unfair to make people disavow someone. But it's like, you have to be happy to disavow the anti-trans, anti-gay, misogynist, anti-Semite in your midst. That has to be just a, no, a no-brainer. I really feel that. And I... Um, and are we mad at him that he got the Hitler quote wrong? Like, would a correct Hitler quote change anything for us? <laughs> I again, but I also the no- getting the Nazi stuff wrong. If we want to, they just wanted legacy. to have, they just wanted to have Yechus. But I agree with you, Stephanie. I want to be the community that never calls for anybody to be canceled or fired. I really do. Just I to so come badly, on the show. I so badly just want them to have to make an apology stop of one, which is. The Unorthodox Studios. And again, we offer our services. Guys, we are here to absolve you of all your sins, especially if you play for the Philadelphia Eagles. Fly, Eagles, fly. Oh, 
Hey J Crew, producer Josh Cross here. Shortly after we recorded this episode, Tablet senior writer Yair Rosenberg sat down with Zach Banner, the Pittsburgh Steelers lineman that posted a video against anti-Semitism to Twitter as a response to Deshaun Jackson and others posting offensive material. Yair has a full article coming out with his interview with Banner coming out shortly, and you'll be able to find it at tabletmag.com. We'll also link to Yair's article and Banner's video in the show notes. For now, we've got Zach talking about learning what happened and why he responded. And I woke up, I realized, man, I don't have to be up for my workout for about an hour or two. So I just checked my phone real quick as I was trying to fall back asleep. And then like, I saw this video of him. No, no, what I saw was I saw Adam Schefter. He said something like, waiting on Philly's response. And then I went to his, his, his page. I don't follow him on Instagram. I went to his IG page and I said, that's not right. I just saw the apology because obviously he had deleted and taken down the things before. So this is 18 hours. And I just sat there and I kind of questioned myself like, man, how did I not see that? How did something like this? It just ate at me, man. And it wrenched my heart. It just, it just made me feel like, like that was so messed up. Dude, I, I had to go right there at 5 a.m. at 4.30, 5 a.m. I, I was so upset by Deshaun's comments. But on top of that, just like how I didn't hear about this and why didn't we hear about this? And, and the reason why is because no one was speaking out about it. So when I posted that video, that's why I looked so emotional and tired. I like felt like I needed to say something from my friends and the guys and also, you know, the women that I have met and have friendly relationship with and you know, there's people that when I go back out to LA or it's like, you know, they text me, good game. And like, they, you know, and I reach out and I say, hey, how you been? So I also have like a baseline knowledge of the Holocaust. I have a baseline knowledge of World War II. I know about, you know, the Nazi movement and things like that, and genocide and that. But when I hear these stories from a Jewish person, it's very, very passionate. I learned um, so many different things. After Zach posted his response video, Hundreds of people started visiting and making donations to his charity, the B3 Foundation. The B3 is two different factors. One is it's literally um, our motto. It's, br- it's bringing together, building together, and better together. So those three, the three Bs, but it's also three locations. Guam is one of them, based off my tomorrow background. Tacoma, Washington, where I actually grew up, and then just because of SC and how much community service I've done out there during my tenure there, Los Angeles. So those three locations. We focus on those those kids within inner city communities, people who don't have the opportunity and don't have a voice and never had a voice. We we want to be able to tell them we're here for you. It consists of mentorship, backpack giveaways school supplies, speaking to kids, visiting kids, talking about the importance of education and stuff like that. But to be honest with you, man, the together part, like I really felt that from the Jewish community this last weekend. And I want to reiterate that, man. Like, I just want to show my gratitude to the Jewish community. Like we literally $60,000, but Sarah, my manager, because I said, why is everyone donating in increments of 18? Like, what is this? She taught me about the importance of that number. They had full sixty thousand dollars. I'm throwing you right now, outside of maybe a couple hundred dollar donations. That's how many people like donated to my foundation. I I feel honored. 
Finally, before they finished, Yair asked Zach what else the Jewish community could do to support black people and what he'd like Jews to understand. Research and listen to the voices of the black men, especially in the NFL, talking about them. And I know that can be condescending because you, you feel like, but I feel like that one one person pissed you off, let one person bring you up thing. I feel like that's a really good approach. So I, I, I want to help us move on from that. And hopefully that inspires people to move on and listen because there's a fear that cops have for black people. Like, and, and that fear is causing them to pull out their guns and shoot them. There's also like other like systemic legislation that's needed to be overturned and changed and rewritten. Listen to those voices as, as the Jewish community, just listen to those voices, understand and sympathize as somebody who has literally been massacred because of what they are and the history of its people feel for us because it's real time, like real life right now. When I get pulled over by police, as someone in the top percent tax bracket and has earned his way up here, I roll all my windows down. I take my wallet, my license, my insurance card, and my registration. I put it on the dash, and I put my hands on the steering wheel, trying to stay calm, trying to stay collective, but I'm nervous. I'm scared for my life. I'm the top of the top, bro. I'm in the NFL. I've been dreaming about here my whole life, and I'm scared like that. I have felt that way since the first time I got pulled over when I was 16 years old. That's what I would like for your people to help bind with. Again, for Yair's interview with Zach Banner, check out tabletmag.com. It should be released soon. You can find Zach's charity at b3foundation.org. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brouse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolfe. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Okay, Mark and Liel, Long Island yeah. Pop Quiz. Are you ready? Yep. How many synagogues do you think are in my hometown of Great Neck, New York? I'm going to go with 18. Ooh, auspicious. Chai synagogues. Are we counting the synagogues you would never go to? Yes, all of them. I'm not going to give a number, but I'll take the over. I think it's over 18 if I'm betting against Liel. It is apparently 22, like the Taylor Swift song. Um, And that comes to us according to our next guest, who is Brad Kolodny. He's the author of Seeking Sanctuary, 125 Years of Synagogues on Long Island. It is a book all about synagogues of Long Island, featuring his photography and a little bit about each synagogue. He and I spoke a while back, but obviously these days we are not able to go to synagogue IRL. So this we thought this would sort of be like the next best thing. And I hope you guys enjoy this, you know, snippet of audio about, about my homeland, Long Island. I am here with Brad Kolodny. He has photographed more than 600 synagogues in 13 countries over the last 30 plus years. But his specialty is his homeland and mine of Long Island. From Great Neck to Montauk and Atlantic Beach to Greenport, Brad has visited and photographed every current and former synagogue building on Long Island, culminating in the wonderful book Seeking Sanctuary, 125 Years of Synagogues on Long Island. It has been called the most comprehensive study of Long Island Jewry ever published. He has worked for The New York Times since 1996 and is an active member at Midway Jewish Center in Syosset, New York. Welcome, Brad. Thank you, Stephanie. Pleasure to be here. Did I get all your credentials correct? You certainly did. It was uh, very lengthy, but you got them all in. Thank you. (laughs) This is very exciting for me because, as you know, I am from Long Island, which is the subject of your work. And that's why it's only me in this interview, because I don't think Mark and Leo would even understand what we were talking about. (laughs) But let's start from the beginning. What is a Long Island? So Long Island is east of Manhattan, and it is an island that contains four counties. Brooklyn, Queens, Nassau, and Suffolk. And because Brooklyn and Queens are part of New York City, what people refer to when they talk about Long Island is really just Nassau and Suffolk counties. So this is a substantial book. You know, when you talk about every synagogue on Long Island, we're not talking like 1520. How many synagogues are featured in this book? I wanted to make sure that it was completely comprehensive. There are a lot of books about synagogues of different cities around the country, around the world even, and I think that those books select, like you said, 15, 20 synagogues. But I thought it was important to tell the history about Judaism on Long Island by identifying every single synagogue as well as every single building that had been used as a synagogue previously and currently is. Over the course of four years, which is what it took me to write the book, I photographed 385 buildings. Wow. And the current number of synagogues on Long Island is 216. We're not talking about a lot of area. Is there something specific about this place and these communities? I mean, why did Long Island become sort of, you know, in our our book, The Newest Jewish Encyclopedia, we say 
Miami Beach, the other promised land. And Long Island, it says the other, other promised land. What is it about Long Island? Why did it become such a, a mecca, so to speak, uh, if I may mix metaphors, um, for, for Jews? I think it's the proximity to New York City. I think so many people lived and worked in Manhattan, as I currently do myself. I live on Long Island, but I work in Manhattan. And the train, the Long Island Railroad, was built in the 1850s, and it kind of just opened up the opportunity for people to you know, move out to Long Island. I will give you a quick statistic in terms of the growth of Judaism on Long Island. In 1930, there were 6,000 Jews that lived in Nassau County, and that made up 1.9% of the population. In 1960, there were 345,000 Jews. Wow. And they made up 26.5% of the population just 30 years later. So you can see the massive amount of growth. And, you know, synagogues were being built in all these towns that were sprouting up all over Long Island. There were literally over 100 synagogues built post-World War II up until 1979, 105 synagogues. So let's talk about Great Neck which is where I grew up. Absolutely. I know you're a proud Long Islander. Semi-proud. It took me a while to get here. (laughs) So Great Neck is one of the towns on Long Island that has a real reputation of being very heavily Jewish. I mean, there's certain towns that have a few synagogues. I mean, Great Neck had one street with like several different synagogues on it. So I really grew up believing Jews were a majority population and was, you know, pleasantly surprised when I went to North Carolina for college, discovered that was not the case. So let's start with my synagogue, Temple Israel of Great Neck. I see a picture of it. Like, what can you tell me? What did you learn about that synagogue in in the course of your reporting? So Temple Israel was one of the earliest synagogues formed. It wasn't the first, but it was the first conservative synagogue. It started pre-World War II. It was in the late 1930s, early 1940s. And they built their first synagogue right after the war in like 1948, 1949. When we think about Great Neck today, Great Neck is certainly on the western part of Nassau County. So the first town outside of Queens. That's right. So so it's much closer to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. But today, I think Great Neck is much more known for its diversity and for its Persian population. There are actually 22 synagogues in Great Neck. It's so crazy. Yes. And you have Syrian, you have Iraqi, Iranian, you have even Mashadi, which is Mm -hmm. a, a city in Iran. So they're even separate from the Iranian synagogues. Their traditions are, are, are a little bit different, but the synagogues going into them is just very unique for me and very important to tell the story of Great Neck because it's a very unique part of Long Island Judaism. Well, it's so interesting. So Old Mill Road is sort of like Synagogue Row. You start at Temple Bethel, which is this sort of very well-known. That's the first one. Yes, that was the first one. Yes, that's the Great Reform Synagogue. It's beautiful. I mean, how would you describe that architecture? That was built in 1932, and at By the way, that this time, this is so fun. You can just like tell me. St- facts about the town I grew up in. This is great. I guess four years of doing this work, these details are in my head. But so Temple Bethel was built in 1932. And the fact of the matter is at that time, there were not a lot of Jews in Great Neck. And so the architecture of that building was specifically made to fit in with the community. It was a very Protestant Catholic community. And so the synagogue itself was actually designed to fit in and not to stand out within the community. In the 1970s, there was an expansion of that particular congregation, and they hired an architect, the same architect who actually built the Shrine of the Book. Where they keep the Dead Sea Scrolls. Wow. 
So they sort of went from being, I want to fit in, to being like super into their Judaism. But exactly it's, it's, right. It's interesting. And then so you keep going and then you get you hit Great Neck Synagogue, which is one of the Orthodox congregations. And if you keep going, then you hit my alma mater, Temple Israel of Great Neck. But that was sort of the extent of it, I think, for when I was growing up. Those were the three I was really aware of. But now it seems like there's a lot of like little tiny ones on Middle Neck Road. And then, as you say, sort of the development of the Persian population, like there are more of those synagogues. I mean, how would how do you account for that? It's clearly defined by what happened in the world in 1979. You had Ayatollah Khomeini who came to power and a lot of people started fleeing Iran for other places in the world. Queens and Great Neck were one of those areas that people came to. And that is really what's given rise to the Jewish population in Great Neck since 1979. And it really adds to an interesting landscape because you have young Israel in Great Neck, you have Chabad in Great Neck, you have all these other Persian synagogues and Iranian as well. So it's just a mix of many groups who want to have their own traditions observed and, uh, you know, have their own people belong. So did you grow up on Long Island? That might be the dirty little secret here is that (laughs) I did not. I grew up north of the city in Rockland County, but I have lived on Long Island for 23 years and been a member of Midway Jewish Center in Syosset ever since. So tell us about Midway Jewish Center. Midway has been our home since 2003. It's a fantastic synagogue, and it is really the place where I got the idea for doing this book. In March of 2015, our synagogue was doing a renovation of the sanctuary. And the night before the renovation, I went in to take photographs to remember what the synagogue looked like before it was changed over. And I remember thinking to myself that night, what memories are lost when you take a sacred space and it is ripped down to the floorboards and the wall studs and you're starting over? And then I began to think of it in a larger context. What changes or what memories have been lost at other places locally on Long Island? And who's recording that? Who remembers or who is going to remember all these changes that have taken place? One thing that we haven't touched on here is that there's a tremendous amount of synagogues that are closing and merging. Who's going to remember those places? And when I started doing the research, sadly, the answer was nobody. So I basically just took it upon myself. And there's a beautiful synagogue in here that has since been torn down and turned into condos, I believe. It's going to be turned into condos. But yes, you're talking about Temple Emmanuel in East Meadow. So can you describe that that structure for us? So Temple Emmanuel in East Meadow was part of the post-World War II boom. And there was a synagogue built there very unique, very architecturally significant, what we call a mid-century modern building. And it was built in the round. The sanctuary was constructed just of concrete and stained glass. And to be inside, and I was fortunate to have been there a few times and to gone to services there, it's just a beautiful view to see the stained glass. And I'm, and I'm not talking about stained glass that you see traditionally. It's the entire wall. And there is a two-page spread in my book that shows it, that it was just such a beautiful sight to see. I think the closest thing that I could compare it to, do you remember the old game, Light Bright? Yes. You would look at that and you could see the colored pegs that are in the board. That's the impression that I got. It was like you were in a a dome full of Light Bright. Yes. So what happened there? Why does it get torn down? The building opened in 1957. After many years, people move away. There's less members, and unfortunately for this particular synagogue, there was some damage to the sanctuary, and it was just would have been so expensive to repair that they decided to merge with another congregation. They sold off the building, 
and it will become condominiums very shortly. Now, I know you're a Long Islander and you're a proud Long Islander from Great Neck. So I thought maybe if you're okay, I'd like to turn the tables here. And wow, wow, maybe wow. ask you a few questions. Okay. All right. This never happens. So okay. I'm happy. Okay. So I feel like I'm back in Great Neck <laughs> in high school. <laughs> well, one of the things that uh, we haven't talked about is the fact that there are a lot of celebrities who grew up on Long Island. Okay. And there are a bunch of people, and I wanted to throw out a couple of names to see if you know. These are all Jewish people, by the way. Okay. I wanted to see, number one, if you know, if they're from Long Island. Okay. And number two, did they have a bar or bat mitzvah on Long Island? I love this. Okay. So we're going to start with, I'm going to do five of them. We're going to start with Jerry Seinfeld. I'm going to say, yes, he is from Long Island. And yes, he got bar mitzvah on Long Island. Very good. We have a buzzer. Ding, 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 ding. Well, where is he from? He is from Massapequa. By the way, because you don't bring Jerry Seinfeld in unless you can say that we can claim him. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) He's from uh, Massapequa. Actually, he was born in Brooklyn. His family moved to Massapequa in the 1950s. Which was a regular thing, right? Like you'd you'd start on Lower East Side, then your next generation would go to Brooklyn. And then by the third generation, you probably would have settled on Long Island, Absolutely right. right. They just kept going east. The Jewish American dream. Right. So Jerry's family is from Massapequa. His joke is that Massapequa is Native American for by them all. (laughs) <laughs> That's his joke. I certainly would not take credit for it. And he actually went to synagogue across the border because Massapequa is in Nassau County. He went to synagogue in Amityville at Beth Shalom Center, and uh, he had his bar mitzvah there. Wow. His father, apparently, from what I've read, was a pretty big macher there. He uh, used to blow chauffeur on Rosh Hashanah, and he was very involved with the, uh, the Hebrew school. Wow. Number two. Yes. Natalie Portman. Well, please, like any Long Island native who grew up there in the, the 90s, I do know that she was born in Israel, raised in Syosset. You've got it. Went to prom with like my mom's friend's son in the same limo. <laughs> so she went to Syosset High School? She did. Okay. And, um, you know, it's funny you have these these personal connections that I think I is mean, really big, right? stretching it, right? <laughs> well, but you know, and it's a friend of a everyone friend always, Everyone has like someone who knows someone who knows Natalie Portman from That's right. Did she have a bat mitzvah on Long Island? I'd say she had a bat mitzvah in Israel. She did not, as far as I know. She did not have a bat mitzvah. She did not go to synagogue in the United States. Apparently, she was not enamored with what synagogue life was all about. I will say a lot of my Israeli friends, their families felt a little bit differently about like the, because what I knew was like a very Americanized conservative Judaism. That actually, if you were from Israel, might not be... What, what felt right to you. So yes. they were sort of like, there was another part of it, Temple Israel that like a lot of Israelis went to. I don't know. I mean, it was, I think there was a lot. I, I get that. Not From what I've read, she says that she affiliates with the Judaism when she's in Israel and not so much when she's on Long Island. So this means that we can throw her a bat mitzvah. Uh, we could. That would be, that would be a great event. Okay. All right. Number three. Yes. Howard Stern. I want to say he's like from Brooklyn or Queens. Howard Stern, in fact, is from Long Island. He's from the town of Roosevelt. If you've listened to his radio show, he often talks about getting beat up a lot when he was a kid and did not enjoy growing up in Roosevelt. So is that a less Jewish area? I mean, if you're imagining he's getting beat up, he's probably looks different, acts different. Well, it certainly is now. And even then in the late 60s, it was as well. But that's where his parents chose to live. What about did he have his bar mitzvah there? Or did he have a bar mitzvah? He definitely did. He did. That's correct. He had his bar mitzvah at Roosevelt Jewish Center. Okay. But an interesting fact about Howard Stern is that he continued to live on Long Island, raised three daughters, and they also all had their bat mitzvahs at Temple Sinai in Roslyn. Number four. Okay. Amy Schumer. Amy Schumer. 
I don't know. Like, I could tell you that Chelsea Handler's from Livingston, New Jersey. And that is, like, her funny thing, and she's have to do it. Like, I can, I can tell you about her, but I actually don't... I feel like probably... She's from Long Island. She, from? she grew up in Rockville Center. Okay. Did she have a bat mitzvah? Yes. She did. Okay. And, in fact, in her book... This is very fun, by the way. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying it. In her book, she identifies her bat mitzvah as the point in her life where she decided that she wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Well, that's like we talked to Nick Roll, and he said that he was on the Bema reading his speech, and he realized he did not have the last page of it, which is like any 13-year-old boy's nightmare. And that's like the first time he learned to improv. Right. And I think that's hilarious. I mean, it is such a traumatic time to be put up on a stage in front of all your family and friends as a 13-year-old. And number five. Okay, okay, okay. Last but not yeah. least, Geraldo Rivera. Wow. I was so sure you were going to give me Andy Kaufman. Who was from, <laughs> from Great, Great Neck. Neck. I should best. have. That's right. Uh, but you obviously Rivera. knew that is Andy Kaufman was from Great Neck. Geraldo Rivera is, in fact, Jewish. Okay. His mother was Jewish. His father was not. His father was from Puerto Rico. I say yes and yes from Long Island and Gap Army. You are correct. Yes. That's when he knew he wanted to, to be on stage forever. <laughs> he was from West Babylon. Okay. And the way he tells it, there was no synagogue in West Babylon. His family went to a congregation that was starting out and he had his bar mitzvah in a firehouse. Wow. In North Lindenhurst. That would be very cool now. That's like what you want to do to like make your bar mitzvah different. So what is the takeaway? I mean, is this, this is a celebration of Jewish history on Long Island. Is it a sad story because a lot of these synagogues are now merging? Their buildings are being used for other purposes. Is it a happy story because you have places like Great Neck where there's just like a synagogue a day being added? I mean, what, what can we take away from this about this specific area and that we can maybe even extrapolate to the wider American community? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that the sadness is certainly there because of the declining membership in synagogues on Long Island for a variety of reasons. And I think this is very similar to the trends that are happening across the United States. Less Jews are affiliating with congregations, but I don't think it's just less Jews. I think it's institutional religion that a lot of other churches and mosques are suffering from as well. But I think it's also a story that is continuing to evolve. You have a number of Chabad locations that are growing. You have an area in Long Island called the Five Towns, mm -hmm. which is the southern part in western Nassau County. What are the Five Towns? I don't oh think boy, I actually know Oh boy, you're them. quizzing me here. Because this is our editor-in-chief, Alana Newhouse, is from one of the five towns. So it's Cedarhurst, Lawrence, uh, Woodmere, and Hewlett. And Inwood is also considered part of the five towns, but not as much of Jewish activity there. There are some cities. This is on the there. South Shore, right? Correct. But in Nassau County? It's like right by Kennedy Airport. Okay. Because to me, the five towns is quite different, right? There's a different like flavor to the Judaism down there. It seems to be a little bit more orthodox. It is, absolutely, today. yes. A lot of young families moving into the five towns. Mm -hmm. and um, All five of them. Yes. There are over 50 synagogues in the five towns area. Wow. Two of them are conservative. One is reform. So that gives you an idea of who's moving there. And, and that's developed over time? I would say probably over the last 20 years, correct. And even within the five towns, they're undergoing a little bit of a renaissance because as synagogues begin in that area, they start in homes. And then once they have the financial resources and enough members, in a lot of cases, they tear down the home and they rebuild a synagogue in its place. So I think that's one of the areas where there's significant growth. So to answer your question about, is it a happy thing, is it a sad thing? I think it's just an evolving thing. And for me, it was such an honor to 
be able to bring this information out for the first time, because like I said before, there really was not a lot of research done regarding Judaism on Long Island. I think it's been overlooked until now. We sort of like take it for granted that Long Island is a place with a lot of Jews. That's right. But the idea of going back in is great. So if someone's going to do a Long Island road trip, someone listens to this, buys the book, wants to do like a hit three or four places, where should they go? I would say the very first one would be out east in Sag Harbor. Sag Harbor is the oldest continuously used synagogue building on Long Island. It opened in 1900 and it is still in use today. So if you're there at any time, if you're there over the summer, come check it out on on a Friday night, maybe experience a service there. But there are also some other architecturally beautiful synagogues staying with the theme of the Hamptons and Eastern Long Island. This is a great road trip. I love this. You have uh, <laughs> East, East Hampton, the Jewish center of the Hamptons, which is in East Hampton. You also have in West Hampton Beach, you have the Hampton Synagogue built in the last, I would say, 20 years or so. I was there at the groundbreaking as like a tiny child. Wow. Like maybe not that tiny. Okay, so what else? Where else? I mean, there are a lot of synagogues that I love that were included in the book that are buildings that were once used as a synagogue but are no longer. For instance, if you're doing a road trip, like you suggest, the photo that I've used on the cover is for a synagogue called Congregation Beth David, and that was in Lynbrook. The building still exists. It's a beautiful Moorish revival architecture building with two onion domes at the top. It's a building like none other on Long Island for synagogues, in my opinion. The congregation merged, sold the building to a church, but the church maintained the Jewish symbolism and the structure that was built in 1928. So that's a really special one as well. So you could go to a mass in? Uh, I would assume you could, <laughs> you yes. could go to a... I haven't been inside that particular building, uh-huh. but I went inside a number of them. Amazing. Brad Kolodny, thank you for Seeking Sanctuary, 125 Years of Synagogues on Long Island. This is a very fun and fascinating project that I think will appeal to people who are not just me from Great Neck. So thank you. I hope so. Thank you so much. (laughs) I think it's something that Jews from Long Island could and should be proud of, but I think across the country as well, taking pride in your local Jewish community, going out and learning a little bit about the history, about why Jews moved into your area is a really important thing. I think people will get a lot out of it. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Brad Kolodny. He's the author of Seeking Sanctuary, 125 Years of Synagogues on Long Island. He's following up with the sequel, Seeking Uncle Myron, 125 Years of Optometry on Long Island. Liel and Stephanie, how many Gentiles does it take to be Gentile of the Week on Unorthodox? Typically, uh, the Sanhedrin of Unorthodox says one. You need one Gentile to be Gentile of the week. Okay, that's what Shammai says. Hillel? One one to be a Gentile and the other to, you know, argue with him so that we feel Jewish. How many? The the Tana says that properly done, there should be three Gentiles as Gentile of the week. What what, what is the plural noun for for three Gentiles? (laughs) A white bread bread of Gentiles? A country club of Gentiles? A yacht of Gentiles? (laughs) A bow tie of Gentiles or what? A cummerbund of Gentiles. (laughs) It's You mean a cummerbund, right? There's no first B in cummerbund. I've literally never said that word before, but I, I thought the B stands. I did the too, because I'm a Jew. The thing that your prom date wore, Stephanie, had Are only one B. Are you saying the B, B is silent and stony? <laughs> <laughs> I interviewed a cummerbund of three Gentiles. 
many months back, I think it was February, I did the Jewish Book Festival in Wyoming, Pennsylvania. And I learned after speaking to a wonderful audience of several dozen people and signing books and getting great questions from Jews and Gentiles alike, it was, it was such a lovely event. It was one of my favorite events. I then learned afterwards that the organizers of the Jewish Book Festival in Wyoming, Pennsylvania are three non-Jews. And I took out my iPhone, so forgive the quality, and I said, I've got to interview right now. Like, how is it that three non-Jews ended up running the Wyoming Jewish cultural scene? And they were so charming and interesting, and they talked to me about it. And I just wanted to play a little snippet, a little snippet from my interview with the Cummerbund of Gentiles in Wyoming, PA. I'm Nancy Russo. I am a librarian at Local Library. I am co-chair of this literature program. I am a volunteer at the Federation. I am on the programming committee and the film series, and I'm also married to a Jew, although I am still Catholic. My master's degree is in um, art history, but I had a really a high interest in art done during the Holocaust and right after the Holocaust. My name is Amanda Hornberger. I'm the program director here at Federation. I've been here for five years. So part of my role is Jewish programming for the community. So that means anywhere from little kids to seniors. So I was raised Protestant, United Church of Christ, okay. but always was really interested in cultures and different people and went to school for international studies in German, interned at the Holocaust Museum in DC for two semesters. So really came Jewish studies really from the Holocaust background. So how I got into Federation is I am also the coordinator of a small Holocaust library at a local college here at Albert College. And I was doing their programming and events and they're like, wow, you're doing a really great job. Would you want to do programs at Federation? And I said, sure, but you know I'm not Jewish, right? And they're like, it's okay, you can learn everything. I'm actually on the consistory of the board of my church and just got elected president. I don't know how, but really just maybe my kids go to the Jewish preschool, have come to the JCC since they're six weeks old. My name is John Nelk. I'm the director of the Sinking Spring Library, which is here in Berks County. And I got involved with this because my library had a copy of the Deborah Lipstadt book, Anti-Semitism, here and now. And Nancy, she said, hey, can you make that book shareable? You're one of the only libraries that has it, or possibly the only library. And I thought, wow, it was surprising. It was a best-selling book. It's a very important topic. I look to purchase these kind of things. And she told me about the program, and so naively I said, oh, that sounds really cool. I'd like to be involved. I was raised Catholic. That's my father's side, and my mother was Baptist, but she wasn't really practicing. Her parents did. 16 years of Catholic school. But my mother um, had Jewish friends, and we actually had a few seders when I was a kid. My mother wanted to show my sister and I what this was about, and it was very interesting and fun. My sister, years later, uh, met her husband who's Jewish and fell in love and converted. My husband's not really religious. We have shared some holidays with his family. It didn't seem religious as much as social. I think that's how I view being married to a Jew. I don't think that's true of other families. Actually, when I told my dad we were getting married, he was like, oh, cool, that's great. I know he's a Yankees fan. That's all my dad really cared about. <laughs> my dad is very religious went to Jesuit schools. His, <laughs> his higher religion, obviously, is Yankees. 
I think when I first started, especially, I was like, okay, but I don't even know what Purim is. Like, I don't, like, how am I to program, especially for young kids and knowing that a lot of these families are PJ library families. So they, they're getting the books, but they're not going to go to synagogue. So we're sort of that in-between where it's like we can program for them and create sort of like a gateway into the Jewish community that's opening and welcoming. But as time goes on, I've gotten really used to it and comfortable and just kept an open mind about what the community wants. I don't think the community minds because they know that, one, I'm not trying to act like I know everything, absolutely not, and the rabbis have all been super supportive about encouraging me and teaching me. But also, we have a lot of intermarried families, we have a lot of families who don't affiliate at all. I sort of approach it as not numbers-based, but more quality. So, you know, people might have looked at today's program and been like, wow, you really only had like three dozen people here, that's, no, we had people who were super engaged, super interested in the topic, had great questions, really wanted to be here, that's success. It's not necessarily numbers-based, but it's more peer-to-peer. No one has ever said to me, oh, why don't you convert? I, I just am not really interested in converting. I, I feel that I can take part in so many things here and people appreciate where I'm coming from. Paul and I are taking a class now with the Chabad rabbi. And it's really interesting when he turns to me and asks, given my Christian background, what I think about something. And I'm really learning so much. And I, I thought, it's hard for me to say this, but I do give something to the community. I'm thrilled to be involved in so many things, and I look forward. We are all connected as human beings, as corny, as new as it might sound. I've never been made to feel that I wasn't welcomed or that there was any kind of wall or something like, which you can experience in other ways in life when you meet people that maybe if you don't subscribe to their political beliefs or whatever, that you might see kind of a change in their be like they're kind of like, no, we can't, we don't have things in common. So. Programs like this are great because it's more about finding people's common grounds, but still accepting that there's differences. And that sounds corny, but it's something that really you have to not take for granted and it's a lot of work and somebody needs to do it. I don't think it matters if they're Jewish or not Jewish, they're still supporting, you know, that effort. Do you guys all pronounce Chala? Chala. Chala. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for bringing me to Reading. Thanks. Thanks Thank for coming. You. We found three Gentiles. I would have never suggested Cumberbund if I knew that was how it was pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> mazel tovs. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? So I don't have a mazel tov, but I have a request for J. Crew Groupthink. My little, little, little Consuelo is going to the Beit Din soon, and she needs a Hebrew name. And I Ooh. thought that there must be something fun, maybe that like goes with Consuelo somehow, like with a C. I don't know. I just want to, we've been having such good conversations about Jewish names that I just want to, I want to crowdsource this one. She doesn't want Chava? I haven't asked. Like like my name, Chava Rachel? Chava Rachel? Chava Chava. Chava That's a great one. Fine, we'll see what we get. It's a great Chava Chana is a really hardcore name. I would like to really request that recommendations for Consuelo's Hebrew name come in as as voice memos or voicemail, because I think we need to hear the pronunciation. You know, if you're going to suggest like Shlomit, Chaya, Chana, v, Avraham, Vasar, I want to hear how she should say it. 914-570-4869. Liel, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? I don't have a Mazel Tov. I have a Baruch Diana Emet. I have a in memoriam for a great person who left us this week, Lenora Faye Garfinkel, who passed away at 90. She was an architect for Orthodox Jewish communities. She thrived in a field traditionally dominated by men, juggling a career, raising five children, passed away from the coronavirus. May her memory be a blessing.
And I have a Mazel Tov uh, that I should have given a couple weeks back for our psychedelics episode. Jonathan Sklar and his Sklar family fund uh, helped fund a good bit of that episode as well. We've been so grateful for their support, which has helped make the conversion episode and the psychedelics episode uh, come to life. And so thank you to Jonathan. But also, I'm going to take this moment to thank everyone who has supported us, not just with money, but with mail, uh, with good wishes, with messages, with memos, with everything, uh, not just during Corona times, but also before. It's been such a wonderful journey. We are about on our fifth anniversary pretty much today, more or less. It was it was mid to late July five years ago, wasn't it? 2015. That this crazy podcast birthed out of its uh, shell and flourished at first as a chick and then as a full-blown podcast bird. And uh, I want to give a mazel tov to everyone who has supported us uh, in flight. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Kurt Hoffman, at least until the return of Esther Werdiger, who is on leave. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Laura Harari. And we come to you from the scattered satellite studios, networked via satellite of the unorthodox family. Shalom, friends. Wait, why are you an Eagles fan again? Because I traded <laughs> them the in, in the marriage. No, listen, in the marriage, I could keep two sports. Oh, right? that's I right. Married, Lisa's an Eagles fan. That's right. I a Phillies girl, right? So I, I <laughs> kept the Mets and the Knicks, and Got I it. had to sign the ketubah <laughs> that I will be an Eagles fan.